everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast. My name is Thomas. I am currently a member at large of the Residency Advisory Committee for ACCP. Um, I'm also a PGY1 pharmacy resident at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I'll be completing PGY2, um, also at Vanderbilt in solid organ transplant. And with us today, we have Dr. Tim Ulbrich. He began his career through residency training, then went on to a career in academia, had been there for about 12 years. During that time, uh, he founded Your Financial Pharmacist, or YFP, in 2015, just because of his passion for the financial side of pharmacy and really promoting financial wellness among pharmacists. And then in 2021, actually made the transition away from academia to doing YFP full-time. So we are very excited and honored to have him here to discuss a little bit of kind of the financial side of pharmacy, which we don't necessarily hear a lot about um, while we're in school and um, things like that. So uh, very excited to have Tim with us today and um, hope we can answer some questions for you. Thanks, Thomas, for having me. Appreciate it. So I know one of the, the questions that is extremely common for uh, just about everyone in this is as we graduate pharmacy school and get ready for the next step, a lot of us are graduating with a pretty significant amount of student debt behind us. Mm -hmm. And so I know there are a lot of different options for uh, how to manage student debt, but I was wondering if you could talk us through some of those uh, potential options. Yeah, great place to start, Thomas. I think I think for good reasons, this is often priority number one uh, for, for many uh, new grads, residents, students that are transitioning, fellows, you know, and for good reason. When we look at the data that we have, which is published by the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy each year through the Graduating Student Survey, we see that the most recent class had about $170,000 on average of debt. And about 85% or so of grads coming out report that they have uh, debt that they're going to be working through. And so when you look at those numbers, you know, that's a big, big number. And and unfortunately, we become somewhat numb to that number. Uh, it's almost like at times it feels like monopoly money. I think it's become, you know, normalized. But when we look at a number like $170,000, we have to be intentional about choosing our repayment strategy. And we do not want to wander into this area of student loan repayment without really asking some questions about, you know, what's the strategy for me personally? And it really does come down to a personal decision. And Thomas, as you mentioned, there are, whether we like it or not, there are a host of options to consider both on the federal side, as well as in the private side. There are forgiveness options, there are non-forgiveness options. Within forgiveness, there's a couple options. On the private side, we have what's known as refinancing, which is where we take our loans from the federal system to the private system, effectively trying to reduce our interest rate that has pros, that has cons that we need to consider. And then within the federal system, you know, this is way more complicated than it needs to be. But unfortunately, that's the hand that we've been dealt, right? So we've got to be ready to look at all of those options. And there are a host of income-driven repayment options, which are uh, options where your payment will go up or down based on what is your uh, reported income on your tax return, as well as when you, you report your income throughout repayment. There are what is known as the standard option, which is 10 years, 120 fixed payments, and you pay them off. And so when we look at a debt load, like $170,000, that's just shy of about $2,000 a month for a 10 year period. And then there's options that will allow you to take these out, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. And so this really has big implications because it might be a short, aggressive repayment. It might be a long extended repayment, or we might look at something like a forgiveness option. And we're in this really unique period, Thomas, right now where 
you know, many folks have not had to make student loans. If we go back to the uh, beginning of the pandemic, uh, the CARES Act passed in, in March of 2020, now over two, two years ago. And as a part of the CARES Act, we saw that there was an administrative forbearance on student loans. So for qualifying federal loans, we saw that folks, there was a freeze on the interest rate and there was a freeze on payments needing to be made. That got extended by the Trump administration. It's been since extended by the Biden administration most recently. This week, we found out that's going to be extended now to the end of August of 2022, and we'll see what happens thereafter. So we're now going on several classes of graduates that have never had to make a student loan payment. And that's a blessing, but that's also you know a potential curse that this could be an abrupt change as we look at what's coming when this forbearance period ends whenever that may be. So all that to say, there's lots to consider. Perhaps we can talk more about the forgiveness pathway, which might be of great interest to this group, uh, but lots to consider. And we need to be intentional about how we go about our loan repayment strategy. Absolutely. I think that was a really helpful overview. And I know that there are so many different strategies that it, it was certainly overwhelming for me when I was um, just graduated trying to figure out how I want a game plan mm -hmm. uh, to start getting these loans paid back. Um, and I totally agree. I think uh, for this group specifically with a lot of new grads, a lot of folks uh, pursuing residency training and and working for maybe some nonprofits or governmental organizations or something like that, going through the forgiveness may be really useful. Yeah. So let's talk about the rules of public service loan forgiveness. And, and really just to take a step back, there's two federal forgiveness programs. One that I think folks know maybe a little bit better, or at least I've heard of public service loan forgiveness known as PSLF. One that doesn't get as much attention, which is non-public service loan forgiveness. Uh, for completeness sake, I'll, I'll mention that. We won't talk in detail about that. For, for this group that many may qualify for public service loan forgiveness, there probably isn't a need for that non-public service loan forgiveness because it goes out a longer period of time. Uh, and as it currently stands, it also has some, some other tax implications. So with PSLF, there's some important rules that we need to consider for folks to be qualified candidates. Number one, you have to work for the right type of employer. So you have to work for a 501c3 not-for-profit organization or a federal government agency or entity. So for folks that are pursuing hospital health system practice, for folks that you know might work for the VA, uh, for instance, for folks that maybe work in a not-for-profit ambulatory care type of facility, this obviously is a big group of pharmacists that are going to be working for a qualifying employer. The second thing is that we need to make a total they don't have to be consecutive, but we need to make a total of 120 qualifying payments. And so those have to be made in the right type of loan. So there's some nuances here. You have to be in a direct loan. So sometimes there's some work that needs to be done in terms of consolidation. And then ultimately, when we make those qualifying loans using a qualifying repayment plan, which would be an income-driven repayment plan, when we get to 120 qualified payments, our remaining balance of these federal loans are forgiven and they're forgiven tax-free. Now, these are only qualifying federal loans. So for folks that have private loans, you want to think about private and federal loans as a one-way street, right? So whether you have existing private loans or for some reason you move your loans from the federal to the private system, that's a one-way street. Once you have a private loan, that cannot come back into the federal system. So you're going to have to pay those off separately and that will be a different discussion on the strategy of how to do that. And so when we look at PSLF, public service loan forgiveness, this becomes really powerful as a potential strategy, especially for those 
that go through training periods, right? So Thomas, you mentioned your background, PGY1, PGY2. And because of how these payments are calculated, they use a formula that is looking at your adjusted gross income, your AGI, your taxable income. And they're looking at what we reported on the previous year tax return, or we're going to certify our income throughout the process. Now, Tim, why does this detail matter? Well, if you're a PGY1, guess what? Your taxable income when you were a P4 was probably not very big, right? I don't know about the group listening. I didn't make a whole lot of money during my P4 year. When you're a PGY2, yes, you were making a resident salary during your PGY1 year, right? Looking backwards at your, your previous year taxable income, but you weren't making a full pharmacist salary. And even when you're out post PGY2, we still again have more and more payments that we're making where we're showing a lower taxable income. And now here we are as well to the group that is in the midst of this period right now, since the, the start of the pandemic, we've had this time period where no payments were required, but these are counting as qualifying payments. So that is really, really significant because the strategy is for folks that PSLF makes sense and that they're comfortable with that strategy, you want to be all in, right? You don't want to be half in and you don't want to be half out. So when you're going down the PSLF pathway, the goal is maximize forgiveness and minimize what you pay out of pocket. And this is where the strategy starts to become really, really compelling because if our monthly payment, as I just mentioned a couple moments ago, is based in part off of our adjusted gross income, well, we're then thinking, well, what could we do to impact our monthly payment, right? Short of making less money, we don't wanna do that. But what could we do strategy-wise to impact our adjusted gross income? Well, we could make contributions to a traditional 401k or 403b. We can make contributions to an HSA. And now by doing things like that, if we're able to optimize the PSL strategy, not only are we minimizing what we're paying out of pocket and maximizing what's forgiven and forgiven tax-free, we also now are saving money over this 10-year period. And that money is going to compound and grow typically very early in one's career. So this is just a great point to emphasize what I started the conversation with is we want to really be intentional with evaluating these options and we want to optimize the strategy that we're in. And certainly if you're not comfortable, you know, doing that yourself, there, there's folks that can help along the way as well. But for, for folks that are in that qualifying employer hospital health system, academic environments, working for a federal government or agency, really taking a look at that public service loan forgiveness, I think is going to be really, really important. And, and here we are again, I would say three years ago, Thomas, the, the, the talk around PSLF was not very favorable. And, and I think that was for good reasons is that we have to remember that this program was enacted legislatively in 2007. That meant the first group that was getting to the forgiveness you know, finish line, if you will, wasn't until 2017, 2018. And there was a lot of stories of folks that, you know, thought they should be forgiven. They found out they weren't, they didn't go through the process of consolidating, you know, their loans. And so they realized that they had these different forgiveness pathways, or they had to restart their clock. There's a lot of horror stories that were out there. And I think with what has happened recently with the Biden administration, we have a specific waiver that's going on right now, where it was trying to really shore up some of the issues where, you know, I just mentioned if folks thought they were not in the right repayment plan or if they, you know, didn't consolidate. So we're seeing all of a sudden, all of these pharmacists that are getting, and, and certainly beyond pharmacists that are getting to the finish line of PSLF. And I think that's going to give others momentum and confidence in the pursuit of that in their own journey. That's really great to know. I'm, I was definitely overwhelmed, but hearing kind of the potential huge uh, financial benefits of PSLF and then, 
Um, the fact that I could be in PSLF during this forbearance phase and not really be paying anything, but still having it count towards that was um, mm-hmm. certainly a big plus. I want to go back to something you mentioned a little bit ago um, with ways to kind of minimize the payments that you'd be making through PSLF. Yeah, I know there's a lot of different things that you can do to prep for retirement. You have 401ks, you have 403bs, you have Roth IRAs. And coming out of pharmacy school, I really didn't understand what the distinction was between all these different investment options and like mm-hmm. where I would be um, have the most benefit from investing my money. So I was wondering if you could walk uh, some of our new grads through, you know, what is the benefit of of one versus the other? Yeah. And I think you mentioned something really, really important there, Thomas, which is, you know, taking the time to understand these terms. I think we throw around this lingo, like we throw around acronyms in pharmacy, right? So like 401k, 403b, HSA, Roth IRA, like what, what do these all mean? Number one, do we understand that? And then number two, in what order and priority might we consider that? And then also how do these fit in with the rest of the financial plan? And, and one of the things I talk often about on our podcast is that a mistake I see many folks making is that they, they make financial decisions in a silo. What I mean by that is they, they look at a Roth IRA or they look at an HSA and the textbook answer might be sure investing in a Roth or an HSA is a great move. But if we zoom out and we consider that in the context of the student loans, if we consider that in the context of the goals to purchase a home or achieve other financial goals, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't make sense, right? So step number one, as you mentioned, we've got to understand the terms. So low hanging fruit, and there are tons and tons and tons of ways to invest for the future. Uh, and so we can touch on a couple here and typically low hanging fruit is going to be our taxed advantage retirement accounts. And then I'm going to build upon that a little bit with an HSA. So, you know, we've all heard this before, but you know, probably the lowest hanging fruit of the, the low hanging fruit would be making sure we take advantage of any type of an employer match. So let's talk about employer sponsored retirement plans first. So these would be 401ks, 403bs, or you may have heard of Roth 401ks or Roth 403bs, not to be confused with the Roth IRA, totally separate thing. So 401k, 403b, or the Roth version of each one of those are what are known as employer-sponsored retirement plans, meaning that those are only offered through an employer. So we can think of 401ks and 403bs pretty much as the same thing. 401ks, for-profit employers, 403b, not-for-profit employers, uh, contribution limits here in 2022. Individuals can put up to $20,500, which the residents are probably like, man, I wish, right? I could do that this year, but eventually that will be a goal we're shooting towards. 20,500 of your own contributions, and that does not include your employer match. Now, what do we mean by employer match? So let's say you make $100,000 a year, right? Post-residency or post-fellowship. And let's say your employer offers you a 3% match, dollar for dollar. What that would mean is that if I put in $3,000, they're gonna put in $3,000. And so that is low hanging fruit because that would be, you know, in, in essence, that would be free money. So there's what's known as traditional 401k, 403bs, and then there's what's known as Roth 401k, 403bs. Both of those, all of those are employer sponsored retirement plans. Anytime you hear the word traditional, think pre tax. Anytime you hear the word Roth, think post tax. So traditional 401k, traditional 403bs means that we're not paying taxes today, but we're going to pay taxes when we pull that money out after the age of 59 and a half or greater without penalty. So what does that mean? Well, let's say I make $100,000 a year and let's say I'm able to contribute $20,000 to a traditional 401k. What I'm effectively doing is I'm reducing my taxable income 
from $100,000 to $80,000. So I'm not paying taxes on my contributions today. That money grows tax-free. However, I may invest that, and we can talk about that more further. And then when I pull that money out, ideally after the age of 59 and a half or greater, so I don't incur any penalty, when I pull that money out at that point, I will then start paying taxes on that money. So that's a traditional. And the reason why those are specifically aligned with the PSLF strategy is remember we said the the monthly income-driven repayment for your public service loan forgiveness is based off of your adjusted gross income. So if we're reducing our adjusted gross income, and the example I just gave from $100,000 to $80,000, that's going to have benefits of saving, but that's also going to have benefits in reducing the amount that we're making on our student loan payments. Now, Roth 401k, 403bs, remember, anytime you hear Roth, think after tax. So in a Roth 401k, 403b, your contributions are going in after tax, meaning you're already paying taxes today on what you're putting in. It grows tax-free. And when you pull that money out after the age of 59 and a half or greater without penalty, we're not paying taxes again because we already paid taxes on, on the money that went in. So that, that's the differentiation on, on the employer sponsor. Now, on the IRA side, anytime you hear I, RA, the I stands for individual. So these are not employer-sponsored retirement plans. There are traditional IRAs and there are Roth IRAs. Same type of thing. Think pre-tax and post-tax. So Roth, post-tax, when you hear traditional, think pre-tax. Now, there, there's some important nuances between those. Most pharmacists, when we get to our full income, we're not going to be able to contribute to a traditional IRA to take care, take advantage of the tax uh, deduction available. So we're going to have to either contribute to a Roth IRA directly if we want to uh, maximize that, or if we exceed the income limits to do a direct contribution, we would do what's known as a backdoor Roth IRA contribution and different contribution limits. So IRA, we have $6,000 contribution limits. So not the same as the 20,500, but you put those two together and we start to have a significant percentage of one's income that we can save and save for the future. Now, the third thing I want to mention real quick is an HSA or health savings account. Um, I would argue that outside of an employer match, and this is not investment advice because I don't know anyone's personal situation, but outside of an employer match, an HSA is something that folks should be looking for because a HSA or health savings account has what's known as a triple tax benefit. So think of an HSA as the best of both worlds between a traditional and a Roth of what I just described, meaning that you can contribute to an HSA in a way that lowers your taxable income. So you're not paying taxes today. It can grow tax-free, but you also can pull it out tax-free for qualified expenses. And there's some nuances there that, that, that are really important. And so for folks that are working for an employer that offer a high deductible health plan, which is many, many employers these days, you have an HSA that's available uh, to you. And right now in 2022, the contribution limits is 3650 for individuals, 7300 for families. So what I'm grouping together here as we talk about 401ks, IRAs, and HSAs are tax advantage retirement accounts. And more often than not, these buckets are going to be the areas that we want to begin when we think about our investing plan. So I think talking about our investing plan, you know, that was extremely helpful in kind of laying out what our different options are. Um, but kind of, I guess the investing plan would be all just one part of our big financial plan. That's right. Um, and so I guess what are some things that you've noticed um, in terms of financial planning that pharmacists historically have struggled with or things that, you know, might slip the minds of, of someone that's 
just recently getting a paycheck and is now wondering, you know, where do I need to put my money? Should I be investing it first, saving it for a rainy day? Or what exactly do I need to be doing now that I'm making a real paycheck? Yeah, and that's a great question, Thomas. I think one area that I see a lot and I fell victim to myself is one I've already mentioned, which is the the concept that you're making decisions in a silo. So, you know, it could be student loans, it could be investing, it could be buying a home, right? There's so many different things that folks are often facing when they go from this transition of student or resident or fellow to practitioner in that first decade is so critical of a transition period, right? You know, you're navigating student loan repayment, you're, you know, evaluating your employer, employer benefits, you're perhaps looking at insurance policies, you know, you're trying to save for, for a rainy day, you're starting to save and invest for the future, perhaps you're buying a home, you know, starting a family, uh, getting married, there's so many different things that are happening in that phase. And I think overwhelmed is the emotional feeling I get a lot in terms of like, Tim, I've got all these things. And I feel like I'm making a great six figure income. But I don't feel like I'm progressing as financially as quickly as I would like to, because I'm just confused about how to prioritize these. And so coming up with a system is so important here. What do I mean by that? Three main pieces to a system. Number one, you got to have goals. Where are we going? What's most important? Number two is we need a budget in place so that we can make sure we're prioritizing the goals and allocating our cash flow. right? We only have so much cash available each month, and so we want to be intentional. And simply the budget is the way in which we execute upon our goals. So I know budgeting is not super exciting to talk about. And so I like to frame it that way that, you know, the budget is the way that we achieve our goals. So three things we need in the system. Number one, goals. Number two, budget. And number three is we need a way to automate this. Because at the end of the day, uh, you and I, and probably many folks that are listening, we often can be the worst enemy to our financial progress, right? It's just human behavior, especially when we're trying to balance multiple goals at once. So what do I mean by automate? Well, once we know our goals and once we have our budget, I'm a big believer in buckets, creating buckets for the things that we're trying to achieve. Now, what what does that look like? Uh, So my wife and I, we use Ally Online Bank, certainly not recommending them specifically. There's lots of different institutions you can use. But what we do is create a system, and we work with a lot of our clients to do this as well, where you have different savings accounts for different goals of what you're trying to achieve. So this could be, hey, I'm saving for a wedding. I'm saving for a down payment on a home, right? I'm saving for you know, a vacation that's coming up. Whatever would be the, the buckets that we're trying to, to achieve. And that once we set our goals and once we set our budget, when we get paid, we know exactly where that money's gonna go and we automate those allocations to those different buckets. So that is my words of encouragement for the group that's listening. Because here's, here's the reality. Whether you're making $50,000, or $150,000, the numbers just get bigger, right? But if we can build the system and we can be intentional about our goals and allocating our income to the goals, then we're really gonna see the progress start to multiply and compound when we're making you know, that full income. And obviously that will continue to grow from there. Absolutely. And so once we start, you know, for me getting out of residency or graduating from fellowship or something like that and really start making that full salary, mm-hmm. I know one thing that really I didn't think about until I was applying for for benefits for my new job was how to protect that salary and thinking, you know, disability insurance and life yeah. insurance and all of these these kind of big life decisions that really I didn't feel like I had a lot of guidance on. Um, so I was wondering if you could 
talk a little bit about, you know, either resources to, to research that kind of thing or, or some of the, the big considerations that you have when thinking about um, some of these uh, supplemental insurances? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up, Thomas. And, uh, you know, I think it's not a part of the plan that's really exciting to think about. And so we often overlook it. You know, when I give a talk on on preparing to be financially fit, I talk about five things that make up a strong foundation. And anytime I talk about this concept of protection, you know, preparing for the catastrophic insurance, whatever you want to call it, I can just see like the eyes glossing over, right? Because who wants to think about becoming disabled? Who wants to think about a professional liability lawsuit? Who wants to think about, you know, the need for term life insurance? And those are the three. Obviously, there's lots of different protection, right? Health insurance, you know, homeowners or renters, car, and so on. The three that I often see gaps of individuals that we work with uh, in, in the pharmacist community are professional liability insurance, term life insurance, long-term disability insurance. Now, word of caution before anybody goes running and, and purchasing insurance policies. This industry, and for whatever reason, there's a lot of insurance agents that are targeting pharmacists specifically. Um, but you need to shop carefully and you need to understand what you do and do not need before you start to engage with an agent and really look at the policies that you want to purchase. And we see lots of pharmacists that are both overinsured, meaning they have coverage they don't need. And we have to remember a lot of these policies are commission uh, based. Doesn't mean that they're bad agents or bad policies, but we got to do our homework. So we see a lot of folks that are overinsured and we see a lot of folks that are underinsured for the reason I just mentioned that it's not a super fun thing to think about, right? So does everyone need term life insurance? The answer is no, right? But many folks do. So when you have someone that depends upon your income, that could be a spouse, that could be a significant other, dependent family member, et cetera, such that if you were to unexpectedly pass away and that would create a financial hardship. Well, when that is true, then I believe folks need to have term life insurance policy in place. Now, what, what is term life insurance? A term policy, so let's use an example that you know someone has a $1 million 20-year term life insurance policy. So if I buy that policy, let's say at the age of 30, I have a 20-year, $1 million term life insurance policy. I pay a monthly premium. And if at any point in that 20-year period, I were to unexpectedly pass away, then my designated beneficiary, so for me, that'd be my spouse, would get a $1 million payout and that would be a tax-free payout. And that's how an individual policy works. You also could have uh, some type of term life insurance offered through your employer. And typically as we get older, as our health changes, those policies become more and more expensive as time goes on. So you know, for folks that are relatively young and in, in, in good health, these are fairly inexpensive policies. So you, know, you might buy, a, as one example, a 20-year $1 million policy might cost you, I don't know, 40 or 50 bucks, depending on the policy per month. So that, that's how a term life insurance policy you know, works and, and relatively affordable, we can focus on other goals. Long-term disability, the goal again is protection, just like we, we just mentioned with term life. Really the question we're asking ourselves there is if we were to have some type of disability, could be because of a car accident, could be because of a chronic you know, health condition, whatever might be the case, that we are unable to work as a pharmacist what is the game plan to replace our income? And again, you might have some employer coverage that may or may not be enough. We may need to get our own individual coverage, but that whole idea is that we're going to replace a portion of our income if we're unable to work as a pharmacist. And the big risk is really that long-term disability, right? Short-term disability, you know, sure, that's a consideration. Uh, often there may be ways through emergency funds, PTO, other things that we could bridge that gap. 
long-term disability is the thing that could really be catastrophic to the financial plan. Now, these tend to be a little bit more expensive than term life insurance policies because the likelihood of a disability is greater than the likelihood of death, right? So this is going to be you know, a more expensive policy than a term life. And I think what makes these so hard to think about, especially for new practitioners, is like, number one, they're not exciting to think about. Number two, you look at those and say, hey, I could use those dollars elsewhere. Remember, I've got these student loans. I'm trying to invest. I'm trying to buy a home. You know, and, and obviously, these are things that maybe feel like they're highly unlikely to happen. So we've got to find that right balance between being overinsured, underinsured. But to your comment, we really got to make sure that not only we're playing offense with the financial plan, we're building, but we're also playing defense and protecting. One way is insurance. The other way, obviously, would be with, with an emergency fund as well. It's funny you mentioned the term um, building there, and that's uh, kind of where I wanted to go next with my next question. So I know historically it's always been told to me like it's always better to rent or to excuse me to buy than to rent just because when you buy you're building equity and you actually have something at the end of the contract to show for it. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you had any insight on you know buying versus renting and when one might look better than the other um, for us relatively new into the workforce. Yeah, this is a great time to have this conversation, right? Because of, you know, the the craziness that is the home buying market right now, the renting market's going up accordingly, just supply and demand. You know, we're seeing interest rates tick up. So we're starting to see a 30-year fixed rate mortgage push above four or five, kind of approaching five. You know, in the middle of the pandemic, we saw for a period of time, 30-year fixed rate mortgages were three and just, just a, um, a little bit lower than that. So a percent, percent and a half matters big time when you're talking about, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollar home over a 30 year period. I think your question though, Thomas, is a really important one. And there's kind of this blind acceptance, if you will, that buying is better than renting. And and when people say, Well, why why do you feel that way? Oh, because I need to build equity. Okay. Well, we need to really ask ourselves, are we ready to buy? And is that true? in terms of that being the better decision. And sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes the answer is no. And that depends on a lot of factors. Like what market do you live in? What type of loan are you pursuing? What are the rent rates, right? All of these things can impact how those numbers work. But the mistake I see folks making and no judgment because I made it myself is that I'm paying this for rent and I look at my mortgage, what it would be, and I'm going to pay about the same or maybe in some cases a little bit less. So why wouldn't I do that if I could build equity? And my challenge to push back on that a little bit and to evaluate that further is that are you really factoring in all of the numbers with owning, right? So with, with owning, we need to think about what the principal is. We need to think about what the interest is. We need to think about what are the taxes and those go up over time. And we need to think about what the insurance is as well of that home. But we can't even stop there. So once we, and that's called pity, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. So we need to compare that against the rent. We need to factor in the down payment. We need to think about the closing costs. And then we need to think about the ongoing costs, not only of furnishing a home, but maintenancing a home. And, you know, especially for first time home buyers, there's lots of things you may need for that home that you might not yet have. So are we ready to buy the home? And that goes back to stepping out of this silo and looking back at everything else we have going on in the financial plan. And does this make sense? Second to that, we need to then think about if I do determine I'm ready, there's lots of different loan types that are out there ranging from conventional loans where you put 20% down uh, to you know VA loans where for folks that are uh, working in that environment may not have to put anything down. There's pharmacist home loan products that can be you know 3% down, 5% down. There's FHA loans. And those are big determinations, right? Because if you're talking about a three, four, $500,000 home, 
Well, if you're putting 20% down, we're talking about 60 to a hundred thousand dollars. If we're looking at a home of 300 to 500,000 versus if you're putting 3%, 5% down, obviously that's a big difference. And there's different considerations, pros and cons we need to think about. So is buying always better than renting? It is not. It is not. It really depends on so many different factors. And for some folks, it makes sense to continue to rent. The other thing you got to remember is when you look at how a mortgage is structured, um, and this is when you evaluate the amortization table, which is a breakdown of your monthly payments, how much goes toward principal, how much goes toward interest. Those are front loaded towards interest, right? So you might be making a payment of $2,000 a month, but very little of that is actually going toward principal. And if you're not putting a substantial amount down, right? Because of a pharmacist home loan or a VA or an FHA loan product, you might not really have a whole lot of equity in that home. That equity is going to take a long period of time to build. So is equity valuable? Of course. Is your home potentially an asset? Of course. Is it overvalued? I think sometimes it is. And so, you know, really evaluating the numbers, there's a great resource out there. Folks can Google, uh, the New York times has a rent versus buy calculator that I think is a great tool that really helps to make some more of the, um, what is an apples and oranges typically of renting, buying more of an apples to apples type of conversation. That's um, a really interesting resource that I had not heard of before. Um, and kind of like I said, you know, it was always preached as, you know, buy, buy, buy and rent only if you have to. But it seems like there's, you know, a lot of considerations and a lot. Um, I know I personally did not think about um, before really getting into that. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess to just kind of start to tie everything all together. Ultimately, the reason we wanted to have this podcast is to give everyone a little bit more information on um, some financial topics that really, I know I was very unfamiliar with, and I know a lot of my colleagues have been um, very unfamiliar with as well. But if you could kind of sum it up, why does this conversation that we had today really matter to everyone? Like, why do our, our finances matter other than putting food on the table and being able to, you know, take fun vacations and stuff like that? Yeah. And you're really getting to some of the why of the financial plan and financial wellness, which I, I really appreciate the the question. And I've come to appreciate in my personal experience and working with thousands of pharmacists across the country, really getting to this answer to the question of why, why do I even care about this topic of money? And what I have seen and experienced is that when we are operating from a place of financial wellness, right? When we're confident, when we're, you know, really looking with our eyes forward, instead of stressed, looking inward, instead of being, you know, overwhelmed, instead of being anxious and uncertain, we're really able to build from a strength, a position of strength. I think that impacts so many areas of our life. You know, it impacts our relationships when we can relieve the financial stress. I think we are a better employee, potentially a better manager, a better team member, better with our patients. And I, I believe right now we're at a period of time in our profession where we need some big disruptive ideas. And that could be pharmacists that work within an organization that have an idea to pursue and take some risks. That could be folks that are looking to own their own business, lots of different ways to do this. But being financially unwell is really a wet blanket on a good idea, right? And you know, I'm really uh, on a mission to help transform our profession to be more and more financially well. So folks that can really lean into what are the things that they really want to achieve and how can they approach those things with confidence. And you know, I, I think financial wellness transcends more of our life than we often maybe think it does. Uh, and that's really what we're, what we're trying to do in terms of building and empowering a community pharmacist across the country. That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that, Tim. Any other plugs or, or any other resources that YFP offers that you'd like to, to talk about before we call it a day? 
Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to, to do this. This was a fun conversation. We, we've got lots of free resources available, yourfinancialpharmacist.com. Uh, we've worked with a handful of residency and fellowship programs doing education. Uh, you know, if folks have an interest in, in their organization partnering, would, would love to have a conversation. Um, we do do one-on-one planning. Uh, I've got a team of CFPs, tax professionals that work with pharmacists all across the country. So when, when the timing is right for that. Again, more information, all that is available at yourfinancialpharmacist.com. So Thomas, really appreciate the opportunity in the conversation. Thanks so much um, to Dr. Ulbrich for talking with us today. Like he said, make sure you check out Your Financial Pharmacist. They have some blog posts and podcasts that go into a lot greater detail than we were able to discuss um, in our time today. Uh, But again, thank you very much for your time. Um, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And we uh, look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to an ACCP podcast for residents by residents. Our theme music is titled Jupiter's Smile by the 126ers and is provided through YouTube's free audio library. Please subscribe to the ACCP podcast on iTunes or Google Play to be notified of new episodes.